0: Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 9 and 10. We'll be doing two Psalms this morning. I know, it's, we're breaking records, all right? Psalm 9 and 10 this morning is where we're going to be. Um, I'm probably telling you something you already know, but 2020 has been a year for the record books. There has been so much that has happened this year that when I looked back over what's all happened in the first, we're not even completing six months yet, I was astonished that some of these things actually happened this year. They seem like so far away. Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash this year. It feels like decades ago that that happened. When we entered into 2020, Australia was on fire. You remember that? Yeah. Feels like forever ago. There was some skirmishes between the U.S. and Iran. The U.S. bombed an Iranian general. Iran bombed our military base. Iran hit a commercial flight with 176 people on it. All of that happened in 2020. In 2020, Trump was impeached. It feels like eight years ago. Harry left the royal family this year. Some things are on the lighter side of the news, okay? The UK left the EU, 2020. Iowa couldn't figure out how to count votes. This year, that happened. Not that long ago. The stock market plunged 2,900, almost 3,000 points in one day, 2020. The Olympics were postponed, and all of it due to COVID-19, which broke out across the entire world, shut down the entire world's economy, 2020 feels like it's been 43 years long so far. We're not even six months in. And I don't want to be the harbinger of doom here. We still have a presidential election in a few months. How do you feel? (laughs) It's okay if you cry. Uh, Many in our world are crying out in the midst of all of these things and many more that I didn't even mention. Not to mention the protests that are currently going on. Murder hornets, didn't even talk about that. Now I'm hearing of new viruses breaking out now, coming in. It's crazy. And it's causing a lot of people in our world to cry out. In fact, Google is even saying that searches for the word prayer have gone up this year. People are crying out for justice all over our world. We look at these two psalms, Psalm 9 and 10, and what we're going to see is David himself actually crying out for justice. We're going to read all of Psalm 9 and 10 right now. All right, So just bear with me. It's going to be a little long, but it's okay. Psalm 9 and 10. To the choir master, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples His deeds. For He who avenges blood is mindful of them." He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord; see my affliction from those who hate me. O, uh, O you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises, that in the daughter, in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they laid; their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Haggai on Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that you are but men, that they are but men, Selah. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. Sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account. But you do see... For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray over this word that you have given to us for this time in this season. We pray that as we read it, as we think about it, as we ponder it in our hearts, You will help the realities of this psalm to sink down deep that we may become the church that you are rising up here. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to keep in mind a couple of things as we read through Scripture. What's traditional for us on Sunday morning is that we take a very small section of text and we look at it, we overturn almost every stone in the text and we figure out what's in there. But I want you to think about uh, the, the, the fact that we're doing two psalms this morning. and how, how is it that we do that? Well, first, there's, there's two things that you need to keep in mind. Each, first is each passage of the Bible is authoritative in its own right. It's infallible in its original manuscripts. It's uh, inerrant in its original manuscripts. And it's able to correct us, and it's able to train us in righteousness. So that means that as you zoom way down into a verse, and you look at each individual word, if you understand that word in relation to its context, you understand why that word was placed there in relation to the words around it, that it will be instructive and convicting to you as a Christian. That's what we mean by the word being inerrant and infallible. That it's able to correct us and train us in righteousness. So even if we zoom down to the word level... Of the Bible. We will be corrected and trained in righteousness. But the Bible is so authoritative and instructive that the reader can also zoom out from the text and can look at it not only word by word, but can look at it sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, or even book by book. And so long as it's understood, with the intention of the author in mind, being a human author and the Holy Spirit superintending those words written down, then it is able to train us in righteousness, no matter how far you zoom out or how close you zoom in. The key is not how little or how much of the text you consume at one time or how much you get through, but whether or not you understand what the author is driving at with the words that he uses. The second, it's also important for us to understand why these two psalms we're studying together. One reason is that Psalm 9 and 10 form one big Hebrew acrostic, meaning it's a, kind of like a poem that's being written here. And this is part of the reason why, if you look at Psalm 10, at the beginning of Psalm 10, you don't see a heading at the beginning of Psalm 10, like you do the rest of the psalms in book 1. Remember, book 1 is Psalm 1 to 41, and there's only two psalms in that entire book that don't have a heading at the very beginning, all of them written by David, and, and only two of them not having a heading, Psalm 10 and Psalm 33. But here we don't have a heading in front of Psalm 10 because it's meant to be collapsed into Psalm 9 as one Hebrew acrostic. And this is kind of a common thing that authors of the Old Testament will do from time to time is form an acrostic. And and it's pretty frequent throughout the Psalms. Several times it's done throughout the Psalms. Most notable is Psalm 119. Remember, that's a really long Psalm, and it goes straight through the Hebrew alphabet. He's doing a very similar thing here. But the second reason that we're putting these two psalms together that I'm putting them together and teaching them as one psalm is because Psalm 9 and 10 form a chiasm. I recognize you probably don't know what that word chiasm means. C-H-I-A-S-M. Chiasm. And so I want to explain it to you. I want to put a visual up on the screen behind me so that you can get an idea of what it means. A chiasm is a passage where the beginning and the ending of the passage say similar or parallel things. They might address the same topic, they might use very similar words, or even a repeat of the same words, but the point is that when you look at them, they're parallel to one another. Then when you read the next part of the psalm, so you can go to the next slide, Robert or Jessica, I mean... When you read the next part of the psalm, it parallels the second part of the passage, parallels the second to last part of the passage. You see it's working its way in towards the middle of the passage. And it eventually gets to the center, which in our case is the main argument. So you get to finally the point in part three there on the illustration. Now, in our case, we have three steps in this psalm of a chiasm. The chiasms throughout the Scriptures may have as many as 13 or 14 steps when they get to the center, or they may have as little as, you know, just a few, just a handful like we have in our text this morning. But the important thing is to understand that it's structured in a way where it builds to the middle of the text, which is what ours is doing. So the important thing for you to see here is that when you and I write a paper, if we wrote a blog article or if we wrote an article of any kind, we were always taught to take the focal point of our writing and put it at the very end of what we were saying. You save your best arguments for last. The whole paper is building for that very end of the argument. And all the rest of the, of the stuff you write supports that, that main argument. Well, in a chiasm like this, often the focal point is right in the middle of the psalm, not on the extremities, the beginning or the end. Mostly, the beginning and the end support that main point, which is actually in the middle of the psalm, not in the rest of it. So in Psalm 9 and 10, the main focal point or the tip of the arrow, part 3, if you will, is 10, 1 to 11. Not 9, 1, not the end of 10, but 10, 1 to 11. And so then 9, 13, and 20, and 10, 12 to 15, are a step away from that. And they support that, that argument, and they have parallels with each other. And then 9, 1 to 12, and 10, 16 to 18, the beginning and the end of the Psalms, Parallel each other as well under the first part of, and the last part of the psalm respectively. And so what that means is that these two psalms jammed together are actually a psalm of lament. That's the reason why that's important. The whole understanding this as a chiasm is really important because when you see it that way you realize that this is a psalm of lament, of grief, and of sorrow. Now, if you read Psalm 9 and 10, as we did, top to bottom, you don't get that. You get lament right in the middle, but it starts off with, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. That's a totally different tone. That's a totally different feel to the whole psalm. I will recount his wonderful deeds. doesn't sound very much like lamentation, which is what David is actually doing here. So we're going to go through these two psalms together, but we're going to go through them inside out. So we're going to start with lamentation, so you can get a feel of what David is communicating, and then we're going to build out from there. David goes through three steps in this psalm of lament, and we're going to take them in that order. The first is lamentation, the second is supplication, and the third is affirmation. Lamentation, supplication, and affirmation. First Lamentation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. The heart of the psalm. David expresses this this real emotion that that drives the rest of the psalm. He says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So he has this one main question that motivates all this deep sorrow that's building in David's heart right now. How come, Lord, when the most evil men rise up, when all around me is nothing but evil, how come, Lord, when trouble seems at my doorstep, you seem to be absent? Why is that? Why is it that when trouble strikes, you seem to not be there? Can you think, of of a more shocking charge against God than this one? How would you react if at the dinner table your child prayed this way over the food? Dear Lord, how come when trouble strikes our world you seem to hide your face? Do you reach over and slap him on the cheek? Trouble's about to strike you right now. Are you comfortable praying that in your own prayers? How come, Lord, you seem so far away when trouble is so near? To be clear, David is not questioning the Lord's power. He's not questioning his existence He's not even questioning his knowledge of the situation. He is bringing to mind God's care, his justice, and his presence, particularly in trying situations. When things get hard, you hide yourself, and I want to know why. He lists several things that are difficult situations that he has in mind you can just walk down Psalm starting in Psalm 10:1 look at or Psalm 10:2 look look with me there he says the wicked pursue the poor in verse 2 in verse 3 and 4 he says the greedy renounce the lord in verse 5 the wicked man prospers how come the wicked prosper he seems to be doing fine he doesn't he doesn't get punished right away verse 6 he thinks that he won't meet adversity Verse 7, he constantly lies. Verses 8 to 10, he murders the innocent and the poor. I thought you look after the poor. He's murdering the poor. Nothing seems to happen to him. Verse 11, the wicked man is convinced that God doesn't care at all. He's not going to look at me. He's not paying attention to me. You almost get to the end of 10, 1 to 11, and you think... David half believes it. That, yeah, you're right, God doesn't answer. And in all of that injustice, David asks the question, where are you? It's constantly here around us, where are you? Why don't you step in? And a particular note is how shockingly honest David is about feeling the Lord's presence when things are drastically unjust. It seems as though the Lord is not present at all. Mainly because as the following verses can attest, the wicked seem to be go on to go on being wicked with little recourse. It's all this I hear about God's justice. And yet here is the wicked continuing to go on and even prosper. How is it that they're able to get away with this for so long? I don't think this point Should escape our notice that the Psalms are not whitewashed portrayals of how we wish life was. was. That's not how David prays. The Psalms, in fact, are shockingly honest about how the earth, how the world actually is. In fact, If we want to go on in our life and pretend as though our lives are perfectly fine, the Bible is going to step in and disillusion us of that and actually remind us of sorrow and grief. The Scriptures are going to hold us and help us feel grief when we're tempted to feel like life is fine. As we bebop around through life as we can get sometimes and we can think to ourselves no life is you know life is going pretty good right now the psalms are going to step in and go but is it why don't you just think about it for just a moment is it really this moment we're in perhaps even the term injustice has been put in front of your face more often than usual but How often during your ordinary life do you pause to consider the injustices around the world? Last week I addressed the value of human life and spent a good deal of time on the sin of racism, dealing with the George Floyd situation and all of the recent cases of of racial injustice and things like that that have occurred of late. But I want us to zoom out and consider not just the sin of racism, but Other injustices that happen so often in our world. Things like human trafficking. When's the last time you gave thought to that? Human trafficking. It's a grievous sin in our age and very, very prevalent. And we're often unaware of just how many children and particularly women and young girls are trafficked around the world. This is nothing nothing less than slavery, modern-day slavery, and it goes on every single day. It's estimated between 20 and 40 million people are in some form of slavery today around the world. It includes forced labor, marriage, even organ removal. If you can imagine how heinous that is in addition to other reasons for trafficking that you already know about. Over half of the active trafficking cases in the U.S. involve only children. An estimated 50,000 people in the U.S. alone. Over half children. Injustice. That's 50,000 each year by the way. What about abortion? Abortion continues at an incredible pace with millions of babies being killed every single year. In New York City, between the years 2012 and 2016, more black children were aborted than born. Imagine that. Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, was a proponent of eugenics I won't define eugenics, I'll let Margaret Sanger do it for us she said this, these two words, birth control is what she was talking about, sum up our whole philosophy it means the release and cultivation of better elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination and eventual extinction of defective stocks those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. How do you like that? Eugenics. Can you imagine someone saying that? Can you imagine that the, the organization she founded now puts to death in New York City more black children than are born? And somehow, she's not called a racist? How is that? Injustice. How many traffickers are being caught today? How many people are turning their attention to human trafficking? How many people actually even care about it? Or even know about these kinds of things? Abortion doctors, if you want to call them that, have been caught on tape saying the most vile things that you've ever heard in your life and the so-called justice system tried the reporters who brought it to light. And as far as I know, these so-called physicians are still going about murdering babies by the truckload. you realize we have an example here in the Scriptures of David even encouraging the question to us, why, O Lord? Why? Where are you? I'm quite sure that there are many in this room, and maybe even watching at home, feel similarly to me and you're overwhelmed by the sheer volume of tragedy coming at you particularly this year as i've mentioned day by day it just seems to continue to come and i'd be willing to even bet that at one point or another you've probably thought about how great it would be if jesus would just call the ball game just come on back in the whole thing wipe your mind Of the idea that lament, sorrow, sadness, exasperation, even asking, Why, O Lord, is a bad thing. Wipe your mind of that idea that sorrow and lament is somehow a bad thing, that you have to put on airs as if everything is okay. It's not what the Bible actually does. That's not what the Bible actually teaches. David is an example here uh, that, that life is supposed to bring about lamentation. It's supposed to bring about sorrow. And as hard as this year has been, I'm incredibly thankful that at the very least, it has brought many of us to the point of lamentation. Where we're looking around at the world and saying, no, everything is not okay. May it also lead us to the conclusion that sin made it that way. But let's move on to supplication. So then, what are the Christians supposed to do with our lamentation? Do we just sit in it? Well, that's not what David does. So moving out from the center of the psalm, we're looking at the two passages. On either side of it, we're looking at supplication. Second point, looking at 9.13-20, to and 10, 12 to 15. Look first at verse 19 of chapter, of Psalm 9. Psalm 9, 19. You'll see David's cry here. He says, Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before You. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And then look at the parallel in 10, 12. He says the same thing. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up Your hand. Forget not the afflicted. This cry out to the Lord is is part of how we understand that these parts of the psalm are parallel to one another. They're, they're doing the same thing. And both David has, has has this marked change from lamentation and he's moved to supplication where he's actually asking the Lord for a favor to do something. So in 9.13, he asks the Lord to be gracious with him. You can just follow along here. 9.13, he asks the Lord to be gracious to him, to see his affliction, to lift him up so that he may recount his praises and rejoice in his salvation there in 13 and 14 But pay attention to what he does in 15 and 16 because you get confused if you misunderstand what David is doing here. He says in 15, the nations have sunk. Their own foot has been caught. In verse 16, the the Lord has made himself known and he has executed judgment. David's actually using past tense as if it's already happened. He's talking about future events where the Lord is going to rule with justice and he's talking about it as if it's already happened. This is David praying and he's so confident that the Lord is going to act and he's going to respond and he's going to respond in righteousness that he's speaking about it as if it's past tense. Paul does this in in Romans 8 verse 30 where he says this, "And And those whom he predestined he also called Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, all of those except for glorified have already happened. The Lord has done this in Christ. But glorification is the part that hasn't happened yet. That's uh, when we all get to heaven, or when the Lord comes back, as it were. Paul speaks about it as if it's past tense already. So David here is turning in supplication and he's asking the Lord to take care of this situation. And you you see more of the problems there in 10.13 when he asks, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. The heart of David's supplication is that the Lord will actually judge the wicked deeds that those around society are causing. The tragedy that they're whipping up. Now don't miss this. In the midst of the lament, what is David, the king and the Lord's anointed, left with? In the midst of lamentation, what is David left with? prayer that's what he's left with he's left for prayer this sometimes feels very unsatisfactory to us that prayer is what we're left with when the sermon boils down to the main point pray many of us go yeah but what else it feels so unsatisfactory to us You've heard me say a number of times when asking what we do, pray. You may even ask yourself, why does He just say pray all the time at the end of it? Because that's what the Bible actually tells us to do. We're presented with all these anxieties and all these things that we can't control and all these injustices around the world and what is it that the author then comes to at the very end? Pray. What is David, the Lord's anointed, left with? Prayer. And I'll tell you, I don't understand the full complexities of prayer. I don't understand everything that goes on in prayer. There are things we're told in the Bible about prayer that I think are very difficult to wrap your mind around. Very difficult to understand. But I am quite sure that there are things about prayer, mysteries about prayer, that we're never told and that we'll never understand perhaps, until we get there. As an example of the difficulty in understanding prayer, we're told in Romans 8 that we don't even know what to pray for as we ought, but that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. So, even though I don't know what to pray for or don't know what I should be praying for, The Holy Spirit in me urges me to pray. So I pray. And then, He intercedes on my behalf, saying what I would have prayed had I known what He knows. You get the feeling there's a middleman situation here. It could have just been worked out, right? And if that's not enough to cook your noodle, Revelation paints this tremendous picture Of prayer that I cannot stop thinking about in all the years that I've come to this realization. It's both comforting and I think it's chilling at times as well. In chapter 6 of Revelation, the fifth seal is open and the martyred saints are under the altar and they cry out in a loud voice in verse 10 O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's the wicked, the earth dwellers. How long? To you avenge our blood. They're praying under the altar. These are the saints that have been martyred. They're praying under the altar. Their prayer, much like David's, is for the judgment of God to come on those that dwell on the earth, on the injustices on the earth. Now, if you follow that prayer just a couple of chapters later in chapter 8, as the Lord is getting ready to judge the earth with the trumpets, He's specifically judging the wicked on the earth with the trumpets. The prayers of the saints are used by the angels in 8, 3 to 5. It says this, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense was with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So the picture of prayer is that the prayers of the saints are effectively fuel for the judgment of God. a beautiful picture when you stop and think about it. The Christian doesn't even know what to pray for. Who to pray against. What to ask. Sometimes I don't even know. That's certainly me in 2020. Sometimes I, I struggle to figure out who the bad guy is in this whole situation. Seems to change every day. Things you believe one day, you're like, well, I don't agree with all that. You're like, I agree with that. I don't agree with all that either. And it changes every single day. But the Spirit urges the Christian to pray, even in ignorance. And so you can imagine the prayer of the Christian going out of his mouth like smoke. And it's carried up by the Holy Spirit. Changed to what we would have prayed for had we actually known what God knows. It's brought before the throne of God. And it's not lost. It's collected, as it were. That's what the picture is there in eighth. It's like the angels have collected it all. Here's the prayers of the saints. And all of this is going to go up in this, this incense before the Lord's nostrils. Spur him to action. All of it's collected and then thrown upon the earth in the fire the Lord judges the earth with. The point of all that is to say that, Christian, even when you feel as though your prayers don't get past the ceiling, even when you simply do not know what to pray for, commit yourself to praying for the Lord's judgment to win the day. If you are a follower of Christ as God's judgment is unfurled on the earth, I promise you, under the blood of Christ, you're going to be safe. The one who practices injustice, the one who is bent on destruction, pray that he either repents of his sin and his wickedness, or he's sent to hell. Pray as John does in Revelation, even so, Come, Lord Jesus. Now, as we move out from that to affirmation, we see how David begins and ends his prayer with this affirmation, both to himself and in prayer before the Lord, before he actually gets to the lamentation 9 1 to 12, and then in the end 10 16 to 18. Look at 9 7. He says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. And then in 10.16, he says, The Lord is king forever and ever. Now the heart of these two passages are parallel to one another. They're affirming what he knows, what David knows to be true of the Lord, that regardless of the injustice that circles around him, he knows that the Lord is king forever and that from his throne comes justice, that he's good and that his judgments are righteous. He starts off in 9-1 with a thanksgiving and recounting the the wonderful deeds of the Lord, singing praise to His name in verse 2. In verse 5, you'll notice that he goes back to speaking in the past tense again as if some of these things have already happened. He says, you have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. He affirms in verse 8 that the Lord judges the world in righteousness. Now has David experienced these things to the full yet no he hasn't he's reminding himself he's affirming to himself that it's true in his prayer that he knows this is what the lord does for his people the beauty of this psalm is that david hasn't seen it yet he hasn't experienced it yet Look no further than the center of the psalm that we've already talked about. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David feels, I'm sure, similar to you and I during this period of injustice and confusion and frustration and anger, not being entirely sure even who the enemies are. He's reminding himself, yes, but the Lord is good. I know that the Lord is good. And he knows that there will be a day when the Lord rectifies all of this precisely because He's good. And because He's righteous. And because He's just. See, this is where you and I have an advantage over David. Often when you and I read the Psalms, I think this is true. Maybe I'm projecting, but I think this is true. When you and I read the Psalms, we read something like what David is saying in 10, 16 to 18. Look, th- look there with me. He says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. David is is clearly, there at the end of the psalm, looking into the future to the day when God will judge and will eradicate all injustice. What we do often when we read the psalms, as even 21st century Christians, we read that and we look forward into the future to the point where Jesus comes back and we say with David, Yeah! We know that you will do this, that you will bring justice on the earth. We know that you will eradicate injustice. We agree with David, and we too cannot wait until the Lord does all of this. And we transfer David's hope for a future kingdom of God to sit down on this earth. We transfer his hope for that to our hope for Christ's return. And we can and should long for the day when Christ returns. However, sometimes that comes at the expense of us understanding what Christ has already done in the cross. Think about this for just a moment. This may get pretty deep, but think with me for just a second. David would have longed to live in the day you and I are currently in. David, let me say it again. David would have longed to live in the day you and I are currently living in. Not just because we have cell phones. In fact, not at all because we have cell phones. The day where Jesus Christ has already inaugurated, meaning he's already begun, God's judgment on the earth. Jesus has brought the kingdom of God, to the earth. And David is looking forward to the day when God would bring the kingdom of God to the earth. David longed to live in this day. You're in a privileged position. We don't think about it that way very often, but you and I are are currently in a privileged position. What God has done in raising Jesus from the dead, think about this with me. What God has done in raising Jesus from the dead is He has not only declared that He will judge the world in righteousness, like it says in Psalm 9 8, but it also means that He has appointed Jesus to do it. He's declared to the entire world not only do I rule in righteousness, And not only am I going to make all enemies submit to me, not only am I going to make all of them my footstool, Jesus is going to be the one to do it. How do we know? Because he raised Jesus from the dead. Don't know how much you know about this. He's the only one to do that. It's a big deal. We can look back to an actual day in history where God descended from on high, took on flesh, dwelt among us, and rose from the dead. By the way, this is exactly the point that Paul makes in Acts 17.31 when he's testifying before before Athens in the Areopagus. He makes this exact point. He's not only fixed the day where he'll judge the world in righteousness, he quotes Psalm 9.8 there. But then he says, and Jesus' resurrection is proof that he's going to do it through Jesus and no one else. You live in a privileged position. So then think about what that means for us as a church. This tells us everything about what we are as a church body. What's our purpose? What do we do? What, what are we? What God has done in raising Christ from the dead, is He has shown the world that Jesus is the dividing line. He's the dividing line. Those who are not followers of Christ will be thrown into hell and will face the judgment of God. Those who are followers of Christ will not. Will see the fullness of the consummated kingdom of God on earth. Those who are not will face the full force of his wrath, his judgment. In other words, you can know right now which side of God's judgment am I going to fall on. Jesus is the dividing line. What do you believe about Jesus? That tells you everything. But Not only that, in Jesus, God has created for himself a people. He has brought himself, he has bought himself with the blood of Jesus, a people that he has brought to himself. And these people represent his kingdom. The kingdom of God didn't disappear with Jesus left, it stayed here, embodied in the people that follow Jesus. So, what did he do? God indwelt them with his Holy Spirit. And even while these people live in the midst of a fallen world, they are indwelt with a Holy Spirit that is always pulling them toward the values of the kingdom of heaven. And even though they are themselves fallen, this indwelt, indwelling Holy Spirit gives them the ability to live out the values of the kingdom of God. That is what the church is. We are people in whom the Spirit of God dwells that are urged to live out the values of the kingdom of God in the world around us, so then, the injustice that is felt in the world around us, they should be able to look inside the church community and get a glimpse of what the world will look like when God's kingdom is consummated by glimpsing the church. See, the world is looking for an answer to racial animosity. But the kingdom of God is the answer. Because only in Jesus has all the dividing walls of hostility been broken down. Remember, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for all are one in Christ God has already inaugurated his own justice in the world through Christ, and it's evident in his body, the church. He's already inaugurated his justice. What about human trafficking? What about abortion? Aren't we his body? commanded to visit orphans and widows in their distress? Aren't we, his body, commanded to rescue those who are perishing, being dragged away to death, as the Proverbs say? You can go down the list of all the injustices and all the issues that the outside world is wailing about and lamenting about, and rightfully so, in some cases. You can go down the list And you will find that God has burdened the hearts of his people with the desire to enact the justice of the kingdom of God right now. Not even in a future day when Jesus comes back, though then it will be done perfectly. Right now, odds are he has burdened the hearts of you with exactly that, with hearts of compassion. desire for justice to actually do something about it. So then as 2020 is admittedly riding the struggle bus of society right now, as we get frustrated about all the things that are going on right now in our world, it's pretty easy to complain about it. I know I have. but it's much more in line with the values of the kingdom of God to do something about it. The question you need to ask yourself is why has God put you here? What has he burdened your heart with? What gifts has he given you? What are you going to do about it? What is he calling you to do now? You hear the same reports I do. What is he calling you to do about it? Where is the justice of God working in and through you going to touch the world around you? We have plenty of opportunities in Tuscaloosa, by the way. We have several that have volunteered and even been employed in pregnancy resource centers in the city. We have some that stand in front of abortion clinics, share the gospel with people that walk in. It's not just that, though. Do you own a business? Do you run a business? Do you work in a business? How do you run your business in accordance with kingdom values? How do you work your job In accordance with kingdom values. And even when being asked to infringe upon those values, how willing are you to say, can't do that, I'm out? There is a cry for justice that you and I hear now. You have the answer. Don't just let it go unheard. Answer it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know you have burdened our hearts with so many things. I pray you would help us focus. Help our minds and our hearts to zero in on why you have put us here on this planet at this time during all that's going on right now. Help us to remove distractions and focus on why you have done that. Put us in the path of people who are hurting people who feel injustice whether real or perceived put us in the path of people who currently currently do not prescribe to kingdom values give us the boldness to introduce them to Christ both in what we say and how we live in Jesus name Amen